I've entitled this sermon, The Buried Victory. And we'll be reading Matthew chapter 27, verse 1 to 61, except I'm not going to read it all at the beginning. We're going to walk our way through it like we did last night at Golgotha, except this time we'll have a chance to explain each bit as we come to it. In every great sports movie, and I like sports movies, uh, there's always the final game, the most important game, the crucial game. And in that final game moment, there's, you, you know, a prolonged section of the film is given to that moment. And as it gets to those moments, they often rush through different parts of the game and we skip through different sections. But then it comes to the climax, the, the, the turn of the game, the, the most important part. And as it gets to that moment, the directors always slow it down. And we get to see in gritty detail, play by play, angle by angle, perspective by perspective, how the game comes to be and how the team often wins and goes to glory and victory. And, and it's glorious and you love it. And as you know, a sports fan, you get drawn in from all the angles, all the scenes, all the anticipation, it's building and it's building and it's building and it's building. And you know, because you know how movies work, you know they're going to win and you just want them to win, but you're waiting, you love to enter in and then they win. And it's a glorious moment. You start crying if you're emotional like me. I always cry, I'm terrible. I cried in Sing 2 recently. Um, but as we come to this text the climactic moment of Matthew's gospel, the moment that he's been building to, he does that effect. He goes from different angles. He slows it down. We went through 30 years of Jesus' life in 22 chapters, or 21 chapters. Now, the final seven days of his life, seven chapters. The final six hours of his life, a whole chapter, 61 verses. And the way Matthew records it is he swirls the camera from scene to scene, from person to person, character to character, slows it down in gritty detail. But as we watch it, we're going to see that there, there's no winning moment. It doesn't fit with our normal arc that we want to see in a story. There's no rousing moment where the try is scored and the team wins and the scoreboard clicks over, the time runs out and everyone's happy. Or in drama films, there's no moment of oratory and speech where everyone's won over and then suddenly that person gets voted in or suddenly everyone's hearts are turned. It, it doesn't happen like that. The greatest moment in history is recorded in detail, but it ends in what looks like defeat, a grisly defeat, a horrible defeat. But by the end, we're going to see that in Matthew's understated way, that grisly defeat is actually a glorious victory. And so as we walk through this text, let's let it speak to us. Let's let Matthew show us all these different scenes. And the way he's constructed his text is void of interpretation almost. It's demonstration. He's telling us what happened. And then I'm going to try and fill in some of the details behind it so that we can know what really took place on that day. So join me in prayer and then let us walk through this climactic scene. Our God and Father, 
May you bless the reading and the preaching of your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 27, verse 1 and 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. On Thursday evening, Jesus had the Last Supper. He took the the bread and broke it. He took the cup and gave it out and said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you in the new covenant for the forgiveness of your sins. Yet one of you will betray me and you'll all deny me. They went from that supper into a garden and Jesus retired to pray. And as he prayed, he fell to the ground and staggered. He bled drops of blood in in sweat, in agony as he contemplated the cup that he had to drink. He begged with the Father, if this cup can pass, is there any other way? Yet not my will, but yours. And he submitted to the plan that he and the Father had put together in eternity past. Judas, the betrayer, comes and in an ironic scene of tragedy and betrayal, kisses Jesus, calls him rabbi and hands him over to the guards. The guards take him to the high priest in the high priest's house, the one who is meant to stand in place of the people before God, condemns Jesus to death as a blasphemer. And then the guards and the priests strike him and spit upon him and mock him while he's blindfolded. And then we come to our text. All night, Jesus is imprisoned. They hold a final council and they deliver his verdict. He should be sentenced to death. But because they're occupied by Roman rule, they don't have the authority to just publicly execute someone. And so they need to collude with the Roman government. And so they bring him to Pilate's house the governor, the prefect put in by Caesar in Rome here all the way in Jerusalem as his stand-in. But then Matthew tilts the camera for a moment and takes us to another scene, to the final act of Judas, the betrayer. Would you read with me verse 3 to 10? Then... When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave, for the, gave them for the potter's field 
as the Lord directed me. We see here this moment, it's a horrible moment, a moment of regret by Judas, where he realises he has done the wrong thing. He realises this is not right. This has gone too far. And then to fulfil scripture, instead of his regret leading him to repentance, it leads him to deal with it himself. And he deals with himself by ending his own life. And that blood money was used to purchase a field that the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Zechariah had prophesied, but Matthew only mentions Jeremiah in this section. And as we look at Judas, I think Matthew has put this story here to finish off the betrayal, but also to help us see and be reminded that regret is not enough when it comes to sin. Feeling bad that you've sinned is not enough. Feeling bad about your sin can lead you to do horrendous things like suicide. The path out of sin is not mere regret. It's called worldly sorrow. The path out of sin is repentance. To turn from your sin, that's what Judas did, he turned from his sin, but he didn't turn to God. He dealt with it himself. And perhaps that might be your story as you come here tonight. You know you're a sinner. You know that you've sinned. There's no faking it. But you won't take the next step. You won't let your regret take you all the way to God where you turn from your sin and turn all the way to God. Because if you turn to God, you will have your sins forgiven. If you turn to God, He will become your Lord and your Master but it's possible to still to regret your sin but still want to be your own master. And this passage is here to say, don't be like Judas. Regret, repent, and turn to the Lord. So we leave Judas and we head inside to Pilate's court for Jesus' arraignment hearing. Matthew 11 to 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said the same words he said to the high priest, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. You know, picture this scene. The priests in their vestments. Pilate in his Roman toga and garb. In this palatial mansion in Israel, the holy city, a rival kingdom is established. God is standing there. God, Jesus Christ is God standing before a human governor, a human prefect, not even a king, and being judged. And all these accusations coming against him, lie after lie after lie, and yet he makes no charge. He makes no answer for himself, like Isaiah prophesied in what Richard read. He was silent before his accusers. 
And this is amazes Pilate. He's confused by this. If you were on death row and you could argue a way out of it, I bet you we would. See, my kids do it all the time on the smallest things. I do it whenever I make a mistake or sin at home. I'm always looking for some way to justify myself before Maddie, make an excuse, make it someone else's fault. But Jesus, even though he was innocent, absorbs it. Meanwhile, a crowd's forming outside. A mob, really. Let's tune in and see what happens in verse 15 to 20. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered... Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The scene moves outside on a courtyard area. A crowd has formed, potentially some of the same crowd that had cried out, Hosanna to the son of David as Jesus came in on a donkey. Now, as crowds do, turned. We're no different today. Pilate has this gambit every year to earn favour with the people where he'll release a notorious prisoner. Now, Barabbas was convicted of murder. He was a terrorist, an insurrectionist, had tried to overtake the Roman government. He was actually someone that was trying to overthrow the government. And here is Jesus, the true king of the world. And the two are put on stage. And the chief priests in the background are inciting the people, inciting the mob to turn against Jesus. Verse 21. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? but they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. You see Pilate here caught in a tricky political situation. He knows Jesus is innocent. 
He's tried him himself. There's no real charge here. His wife has even warned him in a dream. And, and in that culture, a dream could often be seen as an omen. And so there was a lot of weight to it. But his political position was on the line, his reputation. He'd already allowed a riot to happen earlier in his tenancy. And he was on a thin edge with the government. The chief priests knew it. They stir them up to riot and they cry out not just for imprisonment, not just for torture, but for crucifixion, the termination of his life through torture. That's what they want, the bloodlust of humanity. And so Barabbas goes free and Jesus is scourged. Matthew just says that word, scourged, but doesn't give us much detail. Later on, he'll simply say Jesus was crucified, but again, doesn't go into the gory detail. But we know from history that to scourge someone was to take a whip with nine leather straps embedded within the straps were bone and metal and bearings and balls so that as the victim was whipped with these nine whips, it would lacerate the skin, tenderize the skin, and there was claws and things and pieces of metal that would then rip off the skin. At times, people died just from the scourging. And Jesus, our Jesus, was scourged in that moment. And Barabbas goes free. So now Jesus is tried, he's sentenced, scourged, and sent off to the guards to be prepared for his crucifixion. Verse 27 to 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him and they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. To add insult to injury, Jesus is not just brutally tortured, he's publicly humiliated by Gentiles, nonetheless by these Roman guards. And there's an irony to this scene, isn't there? As the Roman guards bend their knee before the king of kings and call him king of the Jews. Because he really is their king. He really is their ruler. He really is the Messiah, the saviour. But there they are mocking him, taking it as sport. With a crown of thorns instead of a golden crown a reed, a small rod instead of a scepter, a laughing stock, as Isaiah predicted. And so we come toward the climax of Jesus' life. This is the moment we've been waiting for ever since we read Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel appeared to Joseph and said this, about Mary who is pregnant. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus 
that he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We've been waiting to see how this will be fulfilled all throughout Matthew. Imagine if this was the first time you'd read through Matthew. It would look like it's a total failure at this point. How will he take away sins? How will he be God with us if he's God being killed? How can God be killed? It doesn't make sense. But we'd been clued in three times. Jesus had predicted that this would happen. The first time with Matthew 16 verse 21. After he reveals to the disciples definitively, I am the Christ, Matthew records, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's all going according to plan. And so now we come to that climactic moment. Verses 32 to 44, where Jesus is crucified. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they'd crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put this charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Matthew doesn't focus on the physical pain that crucifixion would have involved the puncturing of wrists with nails and the puncturing of ankle bones being hoisted upon a cross. He doesn't dwell on that. What Matthew dwells on in this scene is the fulfilment of Scripture. If you go home and you read Psalm 22, you will see so many allusions to this one text here, that he was mocked and insulted, that his garments were taken and divided that people would say those exact words and maybe they, they were aware of Psalm 22 as they said it. Maybe they were aware that, yeah, he thinks he's the Christ, he thinks he's the one of Psalm 22, but he's really not. And so they call out to him and again in horrible and beautiful irony, they name him the king. 
And they paint this picture that if you really are God, save yourself. Verse 42, he saved others, he cannot save himself. And there's a tragedy in that verse, a beautiful tragedy. Because he will save others, he cannot save himself. It's not that he cannot save himself. It's that because he wants to save you and I, he cannot save himself. And so Jesus hangs on the cross from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., noonday, in the heat of the sun in Jerusalem. And he's begun to drink of that cup that caused him to stagger in the garden 12 hours prior. The cup that he begged if there was any other way. But now he's tasting it. Now the scene dramatically changes. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, which is counting from 6 a.m., there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. Darkness in the Bible represents judgment. Judgment of God coming upon a people. In a place where you don't have lights on dimmers and things that you can turn on straight away, even, even a, a decent candle, a lamp can't do all that much. You need hundreds of them to give light. And so darkness is oppressive. Darkness sign is a sign that God has removed himself, the one who is light, the Shekinah glory. And so in that moment, we see judgment coming upon Christ. He drinks deeper of the cup and the darkness and judgment of the Lord falls upon him. And we see a contrast again to the birth of Christ. Do you remember on that night when he was born and the star shone brightly over where he was born and a, an array of angels, a multitude of angels dazzling in white and it was noon at night? Now as the Saviour becomes the one to take upon our sins, it's night at noon. And then comes these fateful words that are just always about impossible to read. Unexplained by Matthew, unexplained in the New Testament what they mean in detail. Because in these words in verse 46 is a mystery that cannot quite, will not ever be understood, I don't think. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes from that same psalm, Psalm 22 in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus did not merely feel forsaken in, on the cross. He was forsaken. 
what began as prayer in the garden and the Lord met him with angels and strengthened him and he had communion with God now ends in a prayer of desolation and anguish. No answer from heaven, only darkness and silence. We see in this moment a picture of hell. No help, no affection, no relational connection with God the Father. And in this moment, it's safe to assume that the sin of all the elect is placed upon Jesus. And the Father, as the hymn writer says, turns his face away. How does the Trinity forsake itself? How can God the Father turn from God the Son? They have loved each other from eternity. Our love knows nothing. Nothing. It's a, it's a pale shadow compared to the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. But in this moment, hell happens. For you and I, our sins, my sins, your sins, placed upon Him and Jesus is forsaken. Erwin Lutzer says of it in his book, at the cross, boundless love and inflexible holiness collided. And with a cry of anguish, we were redeemed. Here is sin with all its horror and grace with all its glory. You see, what's taking place on the cross is a picture of what took place every year, once a year in the Day of Atonement. The night before is the Passover night. In the calendar, it's not the Day of Atonement, but it's so clearly linked to the Day of Atonement where the high priest alone had the job of representing God before the people. And he would take a bull and sacrifice it for the sins. But what he would do is he would take two lambs, or two goats rather, one goat would be taken as a sin offering, taken into the Holy of Holies and the blood sprinkled to make atonement for the people. The other goat, the scapegoat, the high priest would lay his hand on the head of the goat and confess all the sins of the people of that year, all the unintentional sins, all their sins, and, and speak it over that goat. And then someone would take the goat and lead it out into the wilderness out of the camp of Israel, out from the people, out of the fellowship of God, out into the darkness, so to speak. And that goat was forsaken. And here is Jesus, out of Israel, out of the camp, on a hill called Golgotha, in Latin, Calvaria, which is where we get Calvary from. Not in the temple, but forsaken and abandoned out on a hill, on a Roman cross, to die. It's a picture of how we're saved. Our sin sent far off. The blood of Christ paying for it in full. And in that moment, Jesus makes atonement. It's done. We are at one with God through faith in Christ. Because of that, there's no more need for sacrifice. There's no more need for the day of atonement. It's done. Yet the crowds, Matthew pans, and they don't quite get what's going on, or perhaps they're trying to insult him. Verse 47 to 49, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. 
Now that's a reference to maybe some drugged wine that would eliminate the pain and put him into a drowsy space and perhaps he would die. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Perhaps when Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, it sounded like Eliah, Eliah in Hebrew, like Elijah. And there was prophetic expectation that maybe Elijah, who was taken off into heaven, would come back and save someone. So it wasn't out of the realm of possibility for them to think he was calling on Elijah, come and help me. Nonetheless, no help comes. And then another tragic verse, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. One last scream, the cry of the damned. And the breath that was first breathed into Adam leaves the second Adam. His body broken, as he said. His blood shed, as he said. His life complete. His race has been run. He has fulfilled the plan to every last detail. And he drains the cup to the last dregs and staggers into death. And the creator of the world bows his head. It's a tragic scene. Matthew records some unique details that although he doesn't explain what they mean in verses 51 to 54, are surely only placed here to provide some commentary as to what was achieved in that moment. You've got to imagine darkness. The chief priests are there, the crowds, some of Jesus' disciples, maybe John, the women, criminals on either side, Roman guards, and verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The place where the high priest enters for the Day of Atonement. The, only the high priest can enter to sprinkle blood and to see the forgiveness of the sins of the people. That temple curtain tears from the top to the bottom. And the earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, so Matthew's now skipping ahead a little bit, they went into the Holy, Spirit, uh, Holy City and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, saw what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew wants us to see that this death, although he doesn't explain it in full detail, has opened up communion between us and God. There's no separation now between temple and world. It's free access through Christ. 
He also wants us to see that in Christ, a seed was planted in his death, the seed of resurrection, which we'll touch on and speak on on Sunday. And then, as has been the case throughout all of Matthew's gospel, the people who get it most right are the most unlikely. And who else to declare the definitive statement than a Roman centurion, one who had crucified Jesus himself? changes his mind on that day and says, truly, this was the Son of God. So, Matthew has taken us on a journey to Golgotha. The camera cutting, panning, zooming in different directions. We've seen Judas and his regret over killing an innocent man, the Jewish leaders who must get rid of this threat. Pilate and his wife conflicted but driven by fear in the end to put him to death. The crowd so easily persuaded by poor evidence demand his crucifixion. We've seen Jesus tried, scourged, mocked, beaten, crucified, forsaken and killed. And we've seen the capstone verse, truly this was the Son of God. But there's one last scene in this story. And it's here that I felt led for us to focus on and reflect on this Easter. It's something that I've often skipped over in the Easter story. But it's where we ought to linger tonight. The burial of Jesus. Verse 55 and 61. There were also many women there looking on, him, looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and the Ma- Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. The final disciples to be there were the women, faithful to the end. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. This scene, it's hard to picture what it looked like because it's not explained how they pried the nails out of Jesus' arms and feet. His body taken down from the cross, bloody, a beaten pulp, disgusting probably. Joseph can't handle to see his teacher, his master, to be just thrown in a pit with criminals. And a great sacrifice to himself, even though his teacher's dead and his whole discipleship career is over in him, it's a failure. He, he uses his own tomb, his family tomb, and places Jesus in it. Wrapped in a linen shroud, we learn in the other Gospels, some ointments placed on Jesus, but not a full burial because it was coming to the end of the day. 
It's coming to the Sabbath, the day of rest. Rolls a great stone over the entrance and it looks like the movie's over. It looks like the scene is done and we see in verse 61 that fateful verse, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. This is the final scene of Good Friday that we know of. Two women followed Jesus, sitting outside his tomb. What were they thinking? What was going through their minds and hearts? What grief, what horror, what sorrow, what pain, what confusion? Outside of graves, all we can think of is death, defeat and tragedy. A grave speaks only of finality, game over, the end, you lose. But the glory of Good Friday is that we can see something glorious by that grave. We on Good Friday get to sit outside that tomb and see something different. Because the burial of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one of Nazareth, is not a sign of defeat, but just the opposite. The burial of Jesus Christ is a glorious victory. The king is enthroned in a tomb. Because in that tomb, his death is our death. In that grave, although the women didn't realise it in that moment, is buried all our sin, all our shame, all our failure. See, friends, the burial of Jesus on the end of Good Friday is good news, glorious news, because it means that our sin and our death is buried with him and a stone is rolled over and it is finished. That thing you've done that no one knows of, if you repent, confess it, buried. Those words you've said that have hurt and caused long-lasting damage in your life and relationships, buried. Crimes you may have committed, buried. Heinous actions, buried. All those years where you've scorned God, all those years you've neglected God, all the failures, all the screw-ups, all the hurts, all the sin, and even all the sin committed against you, buried. And even that one thing that always comes to mind, whenever you you think of the gospel and, and you think of your sins forgiven, that one thing that comes to mind that you think, not that, I can't see how God would forgive me of that. I will never escape the consequences of that. It is buried. It is dead. And the stone is rolled over that. And it will not rise again. Friends, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ this evening, you are no longer unclean. You are no longer held accountable for your sins. You are no longer under judgment because the old you is buried in that grave and it will not rise again. You are not forsaken because he was. 
and you have full and complete access to the Father because Jesus, the scapegoat, was sent out of the camp and buried in that tomb. Too often we sit outside the grave and we mourn and we we look upon our sins and we, we feel condemnation and guilt. We see our sin and failure. We think we've blown it. We look at our marriage and our parenting and our singleness, our sex life, our friendship, our finances, and we think, I've blown it. I'm ashamed of who I am. But Good Friday tells us it is buried and it will not rise again. So Matthew has taken us on this journey to Golgotha. He wants us to see Jesus in his splendid glory and agony. He wants us to see the body broken, the blood shed. He wants us to see the cry of anguish. And he wants us to see him buried so that we know once and for all, believe it in your hearts this evening, your sin is buried with him and it will not rise again. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you are a new creature. You are a new person. You stand uncondemned, and it's the best news in the world. If you have yet not become a Christian, or you're not sure, turn from your sin, turn to Christ. Confess your sins. And he will take them all, put them in that grave and seal it shut with a stone. And you'll be clean forever, tonight. And your eternal future will be secured. If you're holding on to any sin or any shame or any condemnation in your life as a Christian, confess it and believe the gospel that it is buried and rejoice and breathe again. Let us finish by thanking God in prayer and rising to sing. Well, our Father, how can we thank you enough that it's done? All of it, it's buried, it's, it's final, it's complete. All the suffering, all the pain that you put your son through in our place so that we could be forgiven. We give you all the glory and the praise and the honour. <laughs> we love you and we receive in full our forgiveness. And we trust in full in your son for our salvation and in no one and nothing else. Amen. Amen.